Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Hi friend, welcome to this week's Upfront Moment. This week I am joined by Hattie Willis, founder, facilitator and host of Not My First Guest. Hattie shares her experience as a coach and a trainer through her entrepreneurship education company, Guestworks, and she is on a mission as co-founder of If We Raise to make entrepreneurship more equitable. She is working every day to drive change by connecting underserved founders with the knowledge and the network they need to get fairer access to capital. She's also a fellow podcast host and I have had the honour of being a guest on her podcast, which I love. And she interviews founders of all stages and backgrounds to debunk and de-glamorise startup myths. After the pleasure of being a guest on this podcast, I am very excited to turn the tables today. And now I'll be the one interviewing Hattie. In this conversation, we talked a lot about founder confidence. If you are a freelancer, an entrepreneur, a founder, if you are building things in the world. There is so much to take away from this conversation around showing up online, building a brand and a community around yourself, your relationship with rejection and the things that can give you confidence and steal your confidence when you are aiming high and you have big ideas. If you're enjoying our new season, please take a moment to leave us a review. It's a great way to just show us a little love, give us a boost and help us reach more women. Take care and I'll see you next week. Let's go. Welcome to Upfront Moment, Hattie. How are you today? I'm good. It's such a joy always to speak with you. So I'm excited for this. And enjoy being on the other side. Last time we spoke, you were interviewing me and I know you spend a lot of time interviewing folks for your podcast. So I hope this is a nice treat for you to be on the other end. You know what, funnily, it's I think it's more nerve wracking, but probably good for my empathy for my guests. So, you know, it's never a bad thing. So first question, like, let's start at the start. Who are you? What's your mission? Tell us about your work. Yeah, I currently wear three hats. The name Hattie should be a giveaway. I like hats. (laughs) One of them, I, so I I have, I'm really transparent. I have two companies I'm working on at the moment. One of them I always say is my favorite child and I, I do choose favorites. And that one is called If We Raise. And that one is all about trying to get, first-time founders, particularly underrepresented founders, access to the network, the knowledge that sits within that network, and ultimately the funding that is often gatekept behind a few investors. And we try and help founders really unpack their funding strategy in a much more kind of first principles way. So I think there's amazing support out there if you want to perfect your pitch deck. I do a lot of pitch deck sessions, But what we often find is founders aren't asking some of the more fundamental questions about what they want personally out of this business and what the business needs to be to be a success for them. So we try and help with their journey to grow their business more sustainably in a financial financial sustainability way, not environmental. They're great if they do that too. And what are the other hats? So the other hats are, I have a business called Guestworks, which is innovation 
education training companies. So we go into universities, startup accelerators, a few brave corporates, and teach early stage startup skills. So everything from how to generate new ideas, how to go and test those ideas with real customers, how to get your first paying customers, and how to start building your first version of how you lead a team as well, which I think is often overlooked we start building the product but you've kind of got to build your leadership often as a founder as well so we we help with everything around that and then the final hat is I have a podcast that you've been a guest on not my first Mm. guest where I just have fun and interview incredible people like you who inspire me and give me amazing lessons to take away from my own startup journey and for my coaching and training and the other two companies It's a really brilliant podcast. Me and my team often swap notes on the different episodes. I feel like it's really relevant for, well, for all founders, but for the founders at the stage that that I'm at, I feel like it's a brilliant podcast. So we will definitely put the link to it in the show notes and encourage folks listening to check it out. And I guess that's a form of public speaking, right? You're on your podcast, holding space, crafting these conversations and you do a lot of talks and panel appearances. And I wonder, it's kind of like, what is your relationship with public speaking been like? You know, what is it like? Do you have off days? How do you prepare? What's your self-talk in those moments where it feels too scary? Or yeah. have you always found it easy? So I think I have a weird relationship with public speaking. In some senses, it's always felt really natural to me. So going way back, my dad was a vicar when I was growing up. So I saw him literally speaking in church every Sunday. My mum was a teacher who used to be an actress. So she always had that stage presence, her storytelling. I mean, she was reading Shakespeare or quoting Shakespeare. I don't think she needed a book to read it to me and my brother in the pram. I kind of grew up with this theatricality in the family. And my dad as a vicar was known for being incredibly theatrical with his storytelling and how he would try and bring what he was preaching to life. And so I think I grew up with this model of it as a skill set that it was quite natural. And my brother is now a pitch coach, as well as being a historical fiction editor and a marketer. So I think it kind of runs in the family. That said, that doesn't mean I always feel confident doing it. And I think one really big learning for me was I growing up used to feel so much more confident when I was acting a part than when I was public speaking as myself. And my friends used to laugh. In school, I did a lot of public speaking. I was head girl, so I had to do a lot of speeches. And I could, anytime I was doing a talk, see my friends in the audience laughing because they were like, your voice changes as soon as you are speaking publicly. And I was like, I don't know how to stop it. And I think now, hopefully, I've got to the point where my voice is normally the same. But there are events where for some reason your brain goes, this is a bigger audience, it's a different thing. I'm showing up as a slightly different, maybe not version of myself, but I'm showing up and I need to project a certain version of myself that is maybe a newer one to me and I'm still adapting to. And so I definitely get those moments still of real nerves. And and I guess what I'm lucky with is that I kind of know that that stage fright and that once I start, I get more confident. So for me, it's often kind of pushing myself onto the stage in the minutes before is the hard part, but signing up for the event, saying I'm going to do it is easy. And do you have particular mantras or ideas or places that you go in those moments when you're pushing yourself onto the stage? 
So I think it really depends. Sometimes it's more in the lead up when I'm writing the thing that I have to really talk to myself. So I was actually the other week having to write something about why I'm the right founder for If We Race. And it brought up a load of imposter syndrome out of, for me, what felt like nowhere. And it was a message from my co-founder asking me to do it. And my immediate response was, this has just filled me with dread and imposter syndrome. And it really surprised me. And, And then I had to kind of go and seek out some mantras. And I actually went back. Funnily enough, I went back to my Instagram and I was like, I know Lauren said some stuff. I'm (laughs) going to go to the reels. Like this is the quickest way to access some of Lauren's thinking on imposter syndrome because this is kind of, I'm feeling it, I'm in it, I want to get out of it. So when it feels really different to me, I kind of go and seek advice from other people who I rate and will listen to because sometimes maybe I struggle to listen to myself in those moments. Well, I'm glad that my voice was useful in those moments, honoured to be of service in those times when you need me it helped Um, a lot honestly and the confidence ebbs and flows was the biggest thing that I kind of really thought about because it caught me you know to your point I do a lot of public speaking I say my story a lot and it caught me totally by surprise that suddenly I was feeling like oh I'm a fraud I shouldn't be here I shouldn't be speaking on this topic and let's talk about personal branding because that's also a, a big part of what you work on and also a big motivator for why people like you and I build podcasts and tell our stories in public. And you are doing work around how to help underrepresented founders build their personal brand, but also working on your own personal brand. And I wonder, you know, why do you think that's important and what has been some of the most difficult parts of that process? Like what are you learning about women and the internet and this notion of having a personal brand as a currency that can be incredibly valuable when you're building a business. Yeah, so I think I started building personal brand kind of, I wouldn't have called it that then. I think I'd have run away from that term then. Mm -hmm. But years ago when I was at a company called Rainmaking and I was essentially kind of trying to grow very fast in the company and had a lot of opportunity to do that. But it meant that I always felt super young for what I was doing and I was... A standing joke was I I actually kind of announced on LinkedIn when I turned 30 and it was the first time a load of clients will have known my age because for years I just I would not answer the question and it became a standing joke on accelerators and I just wouldn't ask because I felt like I wouldn't be taken seriously and so for a while for me building personal brand was a way of building credibility in a space that I felt I really had a lot to prove in and if I was gonna progress and start making sales then I kind of had to have that particularly because I didn't have 20 years of experience to kind of fall back on. And so for me, it was a way of showcasing, no, I do know this stuff. I thought about it. I have a brain I'm worth listening to. And I think some of that was subconscious at the time. You know, I'd write some posts and they'd get some uptick and it was a nice little bit of validation. So I was also, I guess, building my own sense of confidence through doing it. But increasingly... I realized then the value of it. I was getting conversations that were amazing with people who I I thought I wouldn't get conversations with. When I started my first podcast, which was called Venture Out, I got a founder on it who I couldn't believe I could get on it. The guy who founded BartBox, which has since IPO'd. And yeah, so for me, it was a bit of a journey realizing how useful it was as I was doing it. I had some inkling of, of why to do it, but the more I did it, the more useful I realized it was. And then now 
where I sit with helping founders and particularly where I sit with helping them with sales on one side, like getting first revenue and also with investors, I just see it's about the most powerful thing you can control in the early stages when you don't have a lot of budget to spend on marketing and sales. But actually, you can put yourself out there. You can get speaking gigs. You can get PR maybe around interesting stories around what you're doing. You can start assets like podcasts and own them. And I think that's, well, we see it's a massive differentiator for who gets funded and who doesn't is who has a personal brand alongside kind of what they're doing, particularly if they look different to your point of underrepresented. And we don't have the kind of, we don't have some of those easy wins of kind of always looking like the person who we're speaking to for investment, let's say. I do often think about the extra, you know, it's such a labor intensive process, both physically and emotionally and mentally and I do think that women founders are expected to have this personal brand around their whole life and their whole identity whether it be their family structure their relationship where they live in a way that male founders just don't have that same expectation and I know that Sharmadine Reid wrote a piece that I often kind of refer back to on that it's actually a really high risk strategy because we know that women founders are very likely to be taken down and cancelled in a way that male founders aren't. And I feel like we are just starting to scratch the surface of getting data and understanding what that looks like from a business perspective, because I agree with everything you've said and it's advice that I give to other people who are starting Mm. new things. But at the same time, there is a risk for, you know, talking about underrepresented founders, like a woman of colour putting herself out there. You know, we know that posts that talk about vulnerabilities, mental health struggles are much more likely to gain more clicks, to get more attention And there's something about that that makes me feel unsettled and I don't have an answer. I'm just. And it's such an important reflection because I think the thing about personal brand is that you feel like you have control over it because it's you deciding what to put out. But you're totally spot on in the sense that what gets picked up and gets traction, you don't really have control over. And I think you're also right to point out that it is really different. And even if you think about like speaking opportunities, like as a white woman, I will get more speaking opportunities than a woman of color. We know that from the data. So you're right. There's the kind of inequality and the opportunity around it as well. And you're also right on the cancel culture piece. And I don't think any of us can be arrogant enough to say, I'm never going to say anything that actually won't be ill thought through or won't be something that could offend someone quite rightly but then means that there's an extra (laughs) lens of cancel added because we're women and we do see women founders cancelled at a much deeper level than we see male founders and even if there's nothing said that's you know wrong in quotations Mm. or offensive I've seen it play out in the kind of mum influencer arena where you know there's just so much hatred and toxicity targeted at these women because they're successful and other women are trawling the internet and trawling every post and reel to try and find reasons to take this particular woman down 
I think that's a good reflection as well on like it really depends on the space you're trying to lead in and the community you can carve around you because I know for instance founders we had Sophie Meisen Barron on the podcast who is the founder of a company called Mama Made and, and they essentially do or did actually sadly shut down but they had food for kids and weaning and I think what she managed to carve out was an incredibly positive community where they kind of talked about that toxicity and tried to really tackle it and it was a space that she then carved out which I think is what's really interesting about that is then since shutting the company down she's actually still got an audience who love her and want to follow her and want to support her in her next thing even though she doesn't know what it is yet and so I think the kind of two sides of this are even if you're operating in a really toxic space I think you can carve out a safer community in it but you have to be really protective of your own boundaries to do that because to your point there will be people who'll come in and want to take you down and a lot of us quite rightly would be really hurt by someone coming into our safe space and attacking us yeah I think boundaries is a big part of the I don't know if it's a solution but the navigating the complexity of you know because we're talking about the internet it's really complicated and I think you know as humans we're still just figuring out how to be on the internet and how these tools can show up in different parts of our lives in a helpful way and a hindering way. So I think boundaries is definitely the key takeaway for me around this topic. And just because someone's being vulnerable in a certain way around family life, for example, doesn't mean that's what you have to do to build your personal brand. Like I'm a big fan of actually, like you do get to choose what you post and what you share. And I don't, for instance, share much about my relationship in what I'm doing because for me that's like a private safe space and out of respect to my partner as well like I wouldn't share that stuff there are other couples for whom that is really respectful and a really good way to share and grow and and you kind of I think working out what is authentic to you you shouldn't be presenting a sense of yourself that's inauthentic but actually saying this is out of scope for what we're exploring like I focus on founder life and I focus on that side of things like I'm not going to share as deeply about other areas what are the most common things that you see that rob founders of their confidence so I was actually doing a talk on this last week and I was thinking about this a lot there are some really obvious ones like getting rejected by investors and all day every day (laughs) yeah and that is so brutal and so demoralizing and I think one of the really hard things about having an early stage company is suddenly especially if you come from like a corporate background and not been a CEO of a company before you've often had people to validate you who are more senior than you and rightly or wrongly obviously it's great if we can validate ourselves but rightly or wrongly a lot of us myself included before starting your own thing will have had people who were senior to them who could tell them you're doing a great job you're smashing it you're great And suddenly you start your own company and, you know, you hope if you have a co-founder, they'll do that for you. I'm super lucky in the sense that my co-founder is exceptional at reminding me of the wins and telling me when I do a great job. And it is the loveliest trait because I am someone who does need a lot of external validation. Like I struggle to pause and tell myself I'm doing a great job. So having people who can do that for me is really important. But if you're building something new, it feels like the two most important people to do that are customers and investors. And so if you're getting lots of no's from them, and often if we go to investors before customers, which is a really surefire way to get a no from the investor and damage your sense of self-worth. But even if you're going to customers, if you're just getting a no and you don't know why, then it's really demoralizing and, and really hard. And I think there is this really false myth 
for me that entrepreneurship is just perseverance and I think that it is a huge part of it right you can't fold at the hundredth no let alone the first no you have to be able to keep going but I think it's perseverance based on data and based on testing your assumptions live so I think one of the things that really for me destroys founder confidence is if you buy into this myth that great founders just have perfect gut instinct and then they persevere through every no until they get a yes and I think that's a recipe to fail as a company because most of the great founders have pivoted their idea based on data as they've gone and yes those pivots have been maybe based on a gut instinct of what that data means quickly enough to move but they have this growth mindset of I don't have to get it right first time and if I get some data that I was wrong that's not a failure that's actually a learning point that I can move on and so I think that for me is often like a destroyer of founder confidence if we're believing that everyone else around us is just innately pursuing Mm. their idea and that's what success looks like I think that kind of then destroys you if your journey's not the same yeah I think building well just being really mindful and intentional about your relationship with projection is something that I would advise any business owner freelancer founder of any kind to really sit with and think about because I think especially if you want to do really big things and you have big ambitions it's just such a core part of your day-to-day and I think there's there's so much to be said for just reflecting on that it's like what is my relationship with rejection how does it make me feel what do I need to recover from Mm. this how can I frame it so that it doesn't knock me off course you know for example like one of the frameworks or narratives that I always come back to is like no's are actually really healthy and sometimes I think if I'm not getting no's it's a sign that I'm probably playing it too safe because I want to be asking for things that are so you know above my station that it's like (laughs) no you can't have a Netflix show like why not (laughs) and that has really that helps me and also to try and get a no quickly it's like I don't want to waste my time and energy on this relationship if you're going to say no. So I would rather get the no up front and then we can act accordingly. And I think like also the biggest piece of advice I give founders is, do you really understand the no? Because if you understand the no, then you have a ton of power. You can decide what to do with it. So if you're getting an investor no, that could mean so many different things. It could be as simple as, they don't invest in startups like yours because they have a different area they're interested in and believe they're a better fit to support. It could be that simple. It could be mm-hmm. that actually they don't believe that this business can get big enough to be a unicorn if they only invest in unicorns, which by the way, it might not be. And that's not a bad thing. But I think what we often see is that, and again, for me, it's like this growth versus this fixed mindset is if you're getting a no, you need to be able to step back and disentangle, like, what can this no teach me? And sometimes the answer is it's not teaching me anything. They do have, who I'm speaking to does have genuine bias. That means as a female founder, they've just asked me about the risks in their business. They've not wanted to know Mm -hmm. anything about the vision that they would ask a male founder. And I think we've kind of got to be able to separate the two, but the ability to, to your point, actually be able to sit with rejection and think, well, is there something I can take from this? If not, cool. I'm not going to let it destroy me because there's nothing I can take from it. But if there is something I can take from it, I'm going to go on and be so much stronger for it. What's the best story you've heard from a founder that's really supercharged your own journey, do you think? 
Oh, it's like asking me to pick a favourite child. God, I honestly don't know. I think there have been so many over the years that have kind of touched different parts. So I think there are founders who've taught me about how quickly you want to test your risks. So I still love, I think it was the first podcast interview I ever did with uh, Matt Mika, who founded BartBox. And he was telling the story of when he had the idea for BartBox. And the idea was essentially like a dog toy and treat subscription box. And he built it for his great Dane, Hugo, who he adored. And so he just had this idea. He didn't want to be a founder again. He'd already been the co-founder of Meetup and had exited it and didn't need to be or want to be a founder again. He had this idea and this kind of calling to something else. And so he was talking to people at the dog park about it and getting so many compliments, everyone telling him like, this is the best idea. You should definitely, definitely do it. You know, amazing. And so he just went back one week and took like a little square or like an IZettle where people could take payment on a card. And the next time someone complimented him, he pulled it out of his pocket and said, cool, so pay me now. And I just like love that. That for me was like a massive learning of so many of the things we think we can't do because they feel awkward or premature are the things that get you the richest learning. And so it's one of those stories that sticks in my head because then one of the people who'd been blowing smoke for weeks, turns out I didn't even own a dog. Like just went to the dog park because he liked dogs, but he didn't own one. He was never going to be a customer for the service and was just telling mm. him it was the best thing since sliced bread. So that one taught me a ton about kind of like testing my ideas. But there have been, yeah, I, I guess so many along the way. I, I could tell a story from every single episode of the podcast that has kind of moved me in a different way. And I think that is the greatest joy of being a podcast host is you just get immersed in other people's stories and then they get to kind of pop up in your head at the right time every time you need them. And I think that's why I love listening to podcasts as well. I do love the idea of just having an eyes settle on me at all times because I'm also like always full of ideas and people are like, oh, that's amazing. I would love that. It's like, okay, would you yeah, give me exactly. a fiver? 20 quid now. Think, yeah, it's like the earlier that you can create some sort of transaction, you know, I guess mm. the most common we see is like give me your email address it's like if you want this thing to exist and there are some amazing stories of people who have paid for a product before it even existed I think there's lots of lessons in there about being really clear and direct early and upfront as we say about the price and the cost of things you know I'm amazed how many business owners still find it uncomfortable to tell you how much their service costs or how much their product costs and it's like you need to stand in front of a mirror and just say that shit out loud over and over and over again and feel the words in your mouth and get comfortable saying them and then once you get comfortable saying those words you learn how to say bigger numbers and on the rejection point, and you know, you were saying earlier, you feel like you're not pushing it enough if you get a no. Unlike my consulting company, I often feel like if they accept my first price, I'm like, ah, that's probably a sign I've priced it too low. They're just like ready to buy. I'm like, ah, maybe next time I'll see what happens. Because it's often consulting is such much more of a negotiation, right? And particularly when you try and tie it to the value you create, not just like hours or kind of time and materials. So yeah, 100%, I kind of really feel that. Sometimes a lack of rejection is teaching you that you could be pushing it a bit more. So the last question I always ask our guests at Upfront Moment is when Upfront achieves its mission of supporting a million women with their confidence and their leadership and their visibility, how will the world be different from your vantage point? 
Well, A, I hope all of those women go on to such financial success that they then become investors in startups and we start to see a shift in the startup world of investment. Very tangible one for me. And like a shout out to anyone who's listening, who's like, oh, I'm not a startup investor, but has money that they could invest, you know, let's say like 10,000 pounds, massive amount of money. But if you're in that category, you could have genuinely an impact on reshaping the startup ecosystem because we know that women are more likely to back women men are more likely to back men and the vast majority of early stage investors are men so like lots of women aren't being backed because of affinity bias that we're more likely to back people who look like us and we need to reshape that system so if we get more women asking for what they're worth because they know their own worth getting in a financially better position then my hope is that that ripples through into like other ecosystems even if you're not touching the startup space that that can ripple through and make a massive difference and then I think that just keeps spinning and spinning and if we see more women on stage more people will aspire to be leaders and it keeps pulling everyone up with it and I'll say you don't need ten thousand pounds you can invest a thousand pounds Yes. So my caveat was going to be, sorry, a thousand pounds is like a, a great first investment in a startup. What I would say is it's not a great strategy to just invest in one startup. So if you just want to dip a toe in the water, 1000 with one startup is a good way to do it. But mm-hmm. if you actually potentially want to see some financial return, you need a little portfolio of companies. And that's why I say 10,000 gives you 10 startups you can invest in, which given they're all going to be really early stages increases your odds, but you're spot on 1000 per startup is a great way in. Yeah. So where, if somebody's listening, thinking, I want to know more about that and how to do that, where do they go? So I love giving this shout out. So one of our board advisors is Epic, a man called Andy Ayim, and he has something called the Angel Investing School, which is all about teaching people to understand their worth to startups and helping them translate how their experience could genuinely help a new company grow and how to get involved as a first-time angel investor. And he runs training and cohorts. And I think it is the best way to get into a place where you understand your own value specifically to startups, feel confident to start to think, what am I excited about and interested in? and actually have the practical skills to go and find those first investments. And he has an incredibly diverse network of angels, but also of startups. So he will then also kind of introduce you to a load of incredible founders who aren't maybe getting backed in the same way they should elsewhere, but are genuinely amazing investment opportunities. So yeah, I will share the link with Lauren to put in the show notes, but Angel Investing School from Andy Aim is exceptional. Plus one for Andy, he does great work and... I thoroughly recommend checking out his school and his content. So thank you so much for this conversation, Hattie. It's been a blast and best of luck raising if we raise. Thank you. I can't wait to kind of keep talking to you along the way in those moments when I need a little bit of a boost. So thank you for the work you're doing as well. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Upfront Moment. Before I say goodbye, I want to remind you to follow Upfront on Instagram and join the other 5,000 women all over the world who get our weekly newsletter. Go to weareupfront.com to find out more. Bye friends, I'll see you on Monday for your next Upfront Moment.